Well, good morning. If you have your copy of God's Word, please open with me to John chapter uh, 14. There, uh, there have been occasions uh, in the past where I, uh, I picked up one of my old uh, books uh, and uh, opened it up and I found uh, the stub of an old movie ticket. Uh, I think it was for like Prince Caspian or something. Read the book. Don't, don't go see the movie. Uh, but uh, uh, you know, I would I would occasionally uh, use those uh, uh, old uh, movie stubs as uh, bookmarks. Since once once that movie ticket is used, uh, there is uh, really not much uh, uh, else you can do with that uh, ticket. Uh, there, there's no uh, no value to it. Some people keep uh, keep the stubs kind of uh, as a, a keepsake uh, memory of uh, going to, to see that movie, maybe with friends or family members. And, but uh, most tickets uh, end up uh, either as bookmarks or uh, in the trash. Right? And a movie ticket really is a single-use uh, ticket. Uh, it gets you in, uh, and then you don't need it uh, anymore. And uh, many of us uh, treat uh, faith in that way. Many of us treat faith uh, as a, uh, a ticket that will get us into heaven uh, and then something to be discarded, something that we, uh, we no longer need. Uh, yeah, the, the necessity of uh, faith uh, in Christ, uh, we understand. Right? We understand our uh, sinfulness as human beings, our weakness, our, our wandering away from the holy God who has given us life and breath and everything. Uh, and we, uh, we trust that Christ alone is able to, to bring us into relationship, into, into fellowship uh, with God, our creator. Uh, we look to Christ in faith as we ought to. Uh, but then many of us uh, seem to, to discard and misunderstand the importance of an ongoing faith, uh, the ongoing value of uh, faith in uh, the Christian life. Uh, it, it's easy uh, to uh, say, well, once I'm in, I don't need this anymore. But as we come to, to John 14, uh, we, we come to a passage uh, in which Jesus is going to, to emphasize uh, the importance of an ongoing faith uh, with his disciples. Uh, as uh, we come to John 14, really the, the chapter break is kind of at an inopportune place. Uh, the, the setting has not changed from John uh, 13, what we have been previously studying. Jesus is, uh, is there in the upper room uh, with his disciples. It's more than likely that this is in uh, John Mark's house. Uh, and uh, Jesus is there eating uh, the Passover with uh his disciples, uh, and uh, in the, the shadow of uh, betrayal and arrest and, and crucifixion, uh, hangs over uh, the meal. And Jesus, uh, in speaking to the, the twelve, uh, he he gets up and washes their feet. Uh, he does what none of them want to do, uh, and then he he predicts that one among them is going to betray him, uh, and he identifies uh, to one single. Uh, disciple to uh, John, the, the author of this gospel. He identifies that, that Judas Iscariot is going to be the one uh, who is to betray him. And then uh, he speaks to Judas and says, hey, what you're about to do, do quickly. And Judas gets up and, and goes out. Uh, and he sets the, the betrayal of Christ in motion. And while that is going on in the background of what we're going to study, uh, Jesus uh, begins to address the 11 remaining disciples. 
Uh, as we saw in previous weeks in verses 31 to 33, uh, Jesus uh, brings back to their attention that now is the time for him to be glorified. Uh, now is the time for him to, to go to uh, the cross. Uh, but he says that he's going to depart and they can't follow after him. Then in verses 34 and 35, Jesus uh, told the disciples, uh, he gave them a new instruction, a new commandment. He says that they are to love one another. And that that is going to be the distinguishing mark that separates them, identifies them uh, from the world around us. Then uh, Peter, the the leader of the disciples, he he gets fixated on Jesus' departure. Uh, And he hones in and says, Jesus, I'm willing to follow you even to, to death. Jesus uh, makes a bold and sobering prediction concerning Peter in verse 38. Jesus answered, Will you lay down your life for me? Truly, truly, I say to you, a rooster will not crow until you deny me three times. So Jesus has made three predictions in a very short period of time in in this uh, last supper. Uh, He has uh, predicted that one of them is going to betray him. He's predicted that He's going to depart and they can't follow him. And he has predicted that the leader of the twelve is going to deny him. So I think at this point, the, the disciples uh, are not fully aware what is about to happen. But they, they have a foreboding that something big is going to happen. Because what could possibly lead the, the boldest one among them, Peter, what could possibly lead Peter to deny Jesus? So the disciples are in turmoil. They're anxious. They are fearful. We come to 14.1. Very next verse. Jesus is going to address them with some commands. He says, Do not let your heart be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. With these With these simple words, Jesus is making a a diagnosis. He's giving a prescription to remedy the ailment that these disciples are facing. And the diagnosis and the prescription are of the utmost importance uh, to both the 11 disciples uh, 2,000 years ago and to all of the disciples here in this room today. In the simple words of Jesus, as we are presented here, uh, we see the remedy of faith. But what exactly does faith remedy? Jesus uh, makes the the diagnosis very quickly and doesn't really emphasize it. The diagnosis that he makes is implied. He observes that the disciples uh, are uh, greatly troubled in their hearts. That they are greatly disturbed. That's the diagnosis. Inner turmoil. And after making the diagnosis, he's going to give a prescription, a prescription really with two parts, uh, a a negative and then a positive, a prohibition and then an obligation. He's going to say, uh, don't do this, but make sure you do this. And uh, we're going to see this and and study this in its uh, parts, but I want to pause uh, and pray and ask for the Lord's guidance as we study this verse this morning. Father, we come to you. Because you are holy, because you are sovereign, because you are righteous, because uh, you are the one true God. Lord, many of us come this morning 
with hearts that are heavy, with hearts that are uh, troubled, with hearts uh, that are uh, uncertain of the future. Lord, may you use your word now to apply uh, your character, your truth to our hearts and to our lives. Help us to grow in trusting you. Help us to grow in trusting in your son through what we study here this morning. May you apply this remedy of faith uh, as a balm to our troubled hearts. May you bless our study, we ask, in the name of your son. Amen. Well, the, the, the first part of this two-part prescription uh, is seen in the prohibition at the first part of this verse. Uh, do not allow your heart to be troubled. Jesus made this uh, simple uh, statement, this simple command. Uh, and because he knows exactly what is taking place uh, in their hearts, uh, he can say this. Uh, but our hearts have a, uh, have a unique way of uh, impacting our countenance. Right? Jesus can look upon the heart of human beings, but uh, we can also uh, understand what is taking place uh, in a human uh, heart. Not 100% accurately, but we generally know when a heart is troubled. Jesus gives this command, do not let your, or as I said before, uh, the plural, I wish they would translate y'alls, uh, do not let y'alls, plural, but then he says heart singular. Speaking to all of these 11, he says, hey, I know what's going on. Uh, the idea of the, the word there is to, to be disturbed or to, to throw something into confusion, to stir it up, to have a great inner turmoil. Uh, and this word was used of Jesus himself. Uh, back in uh, chapter 11, verse 33, as Jesus is seeing the, uh, the mourners marching to uh, the tomb of Lazarus, it's used uh, in 1227 as Jesus is contemplating uh, the cross. And it's used in 13, verse 21, just a few verses back. Says, when Jesus had said these things, he became greatly, or he became troubled in spirit. There's the word. Jesus is, is troubled in spirit because he's contemplating his betrayal. Right? How, how would you feel uh, if one of your closest friends was, was set to betray you that night? And the same word is also used in John chapter 5, verse 3. Speaking of the, the pool of Bethesda being stirred up. Uh, and uh, it, it has uh, all of these meanings. And, and sometimes it is... Uh, used just to describe the state of an emotion, right? It doesn't necessarily imply sin at all times. Uh, but here, the connotation is that uh, there is a sinful fear and anxiety in the hearts of the disciples. Uh, that's why Jesus is, is commanding them, instructing them in this way. And again, it's one thing after another that they've been told, and so that it is easy to, to uh, understand and to be uh, sympathetic to their plight here in this situation. But what's also interesting is uh, how Jesus words this command. Because he doesn't just say, don't be troubled. He says, do not let, do not allow your heart to be troubled. The emphasis is they're not allowed to, the, the turmoil uh, to come into their hearts. I say, well, well, how do you do that? How, how can you prevent something from happening to you? Usually the fear of something happening to me is what creates the turmoil to begin with, Right? How am I to prevent the inner turmoil from rising up in my heart? Well, this is helpful to think about. How do you prevent other things from happening to you? 
Right? How do you prevent uh, someone from breaking into your home? So you say by moving to Idaho, right? Uh, by by having a, a weapon, right? Concealed carry licenses in Idaho are very easy to get. Uh, others uh, get a home security system, right? Some of you may just put a uh, a placard of a security system out in front of your home. I know that was a common theme uh, in California. I don't need the actual security system. I just need the, the robber to think I have the security system. Right? Maybe on a more serious note, how do you prevent yourself from getting into a car accident? First step may be just maintaining your vehicle. Right? Now, you you want to make sure that your brakes don't go out when you're getting into that intersection. Now, you want to make sure that your uh, tires have some tread uh, as there's beginning to be uh, snow and ice uh, on the ground. That you maintain your vehicle in good condition so that you are prepared for what may come. You can also drive vigilantly, right? You understand uh, what danger looks like on the road. Uh, You're going to... Make sure that everybody stops at that four-way stop. Uh, You're not going to assume that they're going to stop. Well, if I assume that they stop, uh, and then I can keep going, right? They'll obey the law, but I don't need to. No, we we don't drive that way. We drive vigilantly and carefully, understanding what danger looks like and being on the lookout for it. And then we, uh, we act and react. We drive wisely, and we respond appropriately when something unexpected happens. Right? Part of driving wisely is giving ourselves some, some space from other vehicles. Right? That way when something unexpected happens, uh, we have time to respond. Well, all those same wisdom principles of preventing yourself from getting into a car accident can be some of the same wisdom principles of how we defend or prevent against fear and anxiety. That we, we need to prepare our heart. Right, you, you maintain your vehicle. Do you maintain your heart? Is it in good working condition so that your strength doesn't fail when the unexpected happens? Are you being vigilant? No, do you recognize fear and anxiety in your heart when it does pop up? Uh, or do you uh, kind of brush it aside, excuse it away? Say, well, that's just, a, that's fine. Jesus' command here is a command. It's a prohibition. Don't let turmoil in. We are to act and to react as well. We are to live wisely and then respond appropriately when turmoil does arise. But again, turmoil arising in our hearts is not necessarily sinful. Right? When, when you lose a, a loved one uh, and you are in emotional turmoil, that's not necessarily sin. And again, the fact that this same word is used to describe Jesus shows uh, that there is an appropriate emotional uh, response to some situations. Uh, but here, uh, that is not the case. We have, we have to ask, what is the cause of our turmoil in our hearts? If we're going to say it's not sinful, what is the cause? Uh, what are we worried about? What are we uh, trusting in? It is inevitable that turmoil will strike our hearts. And I'm not a prophet, but I know that people will disappoint you at some point in time. Now, I know circumstances will suddenly change at one point or another in your life. I know at some point down the road, uh, there will be spiritual battles that you will have to face. And that you will probably face uh, tragedy at one point or another in your life. 
turmoil happens and we are prone to fear and anxiety because of our own human weakness. And because we trust in what we can see, what we can touch. We do not, we do not tend to trust in God as we should. But you know what is amazing is that God, being the sovereign God, uh, he knows our weakness. And do you know what the most often repeated command in the entire Bible is? Do not fear. Do not be afraid. This is repeated from uh, Genesis through Revelation. Genesis 15.1, and I'm just going to cite a, a few of them. We won't go through every single one. But Genesis 15.1, speaking to Abram. After these things, the word of Yahweh came to Abram in a vision saying, Do not fear. Abram, I am a shield to you. Your reward shall be very great. And God is saying that to him because uh, God had promised uh, a son uh, when Abraham was was 75 years old. uh, And God uh, had yet to deliver. Uh, And Abram's kind of like, hey God, what's what's taking so long? When will you answer your promises? Abram was afraid that God wouldn't keep his word. God says, do not fear. I am a shield to you. Deuteronomy 1, verse 21. Moses writes, see, Yahweh your God has given over the land before you. Go up and take possession as Yahweh the God of your fathers has spoken to you. Do not fear or be dismayed. Do you remember when the Israelites went to go scout uh, the promised land? They sent in 12 spies. And what, are the, what report did 10 of the spies return with? There's giants in the land with really big cities. We can't go in. We can't go and conquer. We can't do this. They looked at the circumstances and they grew fearful. But two of the spies said, no, we can do this. And yes, it is a fair assessment. There are giants in the land. They do have really big cities. But God is with us, so let's go. Two of them trusted. Ten did not. And the nation sided with the ten. And they wandered in the wilderness for 40 years. Because of their lack of faith. Because of their fear. At the end of Deuteronomy, Moses says, And Yahweh is the one who goes ahead of you. He will be with you. He will not fail you or forsake you. Do not fear or be dismayed. At the beginning of Joshua, if a new leader, uh, the nation is just about to go into the promised land, guess what God says to Joshua? Do not fear or be dismayed. Isaiah 41.10, do not fear, for I am with you. Do not anxiously look about you, for I am your God. I will make you mighty. Surely I will help you. Surely I will uphold you with my righteous right hand. Matthew 6.25, for this reason I say to you, do not be worried about your life as to what you will eat or what you will drink, nor for your body as to what you will put on. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothing? This command is often repeated because it is often forgotten. And, and it is uh, true that more often than not, we just need to be reminded of what we already know rather than just uh, being taught something new. God knows what we need to hear because he knows our hearts. So turmoil is going to, to strike, and the question is, how are you going to respond? Now, the, the short answer uh, is uh, how we need to respond is that we need to respond to that turmoil, number one, with truth. Secondly, with prayer. Third, with faith. 
We're going to talk about faith in a, in a few moments, but I want to look at that, those first two, that we need to respond to that turmoil with truth and with prayer. We need to know God's word. Uh, that's a part of uh, being prepared in our hearts. Uh, that's the maintenance of the Christian life. Uh, knowing the truth of God's word so that when you need it most, you have it there. Right, we talked about this. Of memorizing and meditating upon scripture is like putting uh, money in the bank. Right? It's like having a savings account. Right? And some of us had, uh, have tried to, to go and withdraw from a bank account and not had anything there. What happens? Overdraft fee. But all too many of us also uh, have done the same thing spiritually. Uh, we have uh, encountered turmoil. Uh, we have trials and circumstances in our life. Uh, and because we have not deposited anything in that spiritual bank account, we have no truth, no scripture in our hearts and in our heads. Uh, we feel overwhelmed. We must combat the turmoil, number one, with truth. Secondly, with prayer. Really, prayer uh, according to the truth of God's word, is the greatest weapon that we have against fear and anxiety. Prayer is the weapon that we must use against the turmoil of our hearts. Uh, and, and I would say that we, we utilize prayer in two distinct ways uh, in this uh, arena. First, I would say we, we need to pray proactively. A proactive prayer. What does that look like? It means that you are uh, actively meditating and memorizing upon Scripture. Uh, and that you are praying through Scripture on a daily basis. Uh, asking the Lord uh, to lead you and guide you and to help you uh, to not give in to uh, the fears and, and the, the anxieties that present to you each and every day. Meditate upon these truths. There's some really helpful verses. Isaiah 26 verses 3 and 4. The steadfast of mind you will keep in perfect peace because he trusts in you. Trust in Yahweh forever. For in Yah, Yahweh himself, we have an everlasting rock. Uh, and if you, if you go and look and study that verse, uh, it's, a, it's a, uh, an inversion of what we talk about in our growth groups on a regular basis. We talk about knowledge leads to faith, leads to a transformation in our character, and it leads to acting upon that. Uh, in this verse, it's it just presented to us uh, in the in inverse order. Uh, we're to trust in uh, that we have an everlasting rock. We trust in the character of God. Uh, and then we are to have faith in him, trust in Yahweh forever. Uh, and because we trust in Yahweh, because the meditation of our heart is focused upon him, uh, the net result of that application is that we have perfect peace. Psalm 56, verses 3 and 4. Says, when I am afraid, I will trust in you, in God, whose word I praise, in God I trust. I shall not be afraid. What can mere man do to me? Verses to memorize and meditate upon. Psalm 27, 1, Yahweh is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? Yahweh is the strong defense of my life. Whom shall I dread? Memorize those scriptures. Hide them in your hearts. Pray through them every day. You don't know what the day is going to bring, but pray through those scriptures. That's proactive prayer. But then there's also reactive prayer. Right? In, in the moments of turmoil, turn to the Lord in immediate prayer. Uh, when, you, when you feel that emotion rising up, know, hey, that's, that's an alert signal. 
I'm, I'm to turn to the Lord in this moment and in this time. When you recognize that fear growing in your heart, be quick to pray against it with the truth that you had med- memorized and meditated upon. Now, the, the German uh, reformer, Philip Melanchthon, he was one of the, uh, the uh, disciples of uh, Luther. He so prized uh, and valued prayer in his life that he was actually afraid to lose his anxieties. Because uh, he understood uh, that he always would turn, as the Lord would use his anxieties uh, to turn him uh, in prayer. Uh, and then as he prayed, he would be relieved. He said this, if I had no anxieties, I should lose a powerful incentive to prayer. But when the cares of life impel to devotion, which is the best means of consolation, a religious mind cannot do without them. Thus, trouble compels me to pray, and prayer drives away trouble. Have you ever been afraid of losing your fears, of losing your anxieties? Uh, that's what Melanchthon was saying, though, that he understood rightly the power of reactive prayer. That when this stress, when this anxiety, when this fear crops up into my heart, I must turn to the Lord. And as a result, he loved his trials because they always funneled him back to God. But we, if we never pray in that way, our anxieties won't funnel us towards the Lord. They'll only funnel us away from him. Uh, and uh, on the other end of that spectrum, if we are funneled away from God, we are just funneled towards despair. You keep your finger here and turn over to, to Psalm 42. I love this uh, dialogue from the sons of Korah. I know sometimes there's a bad connotation of talking to yourself, mumbling to yourself. But I think scripturally speaking, we need to talk to ourselves. If you look at Psalm 42, verse 5, it says, Why are you in despair, O my soul? Talking to himself. Why are you in despair, O my soul? And why are you disturbed within me? Wait for God, and I shall still praise him for the salvation of his presence. If you look over at the end of that psalm, verse 11, you notice the author repeats himself. Why are you in despair, O my soul? Why are you disturbed within me? Wait for God, and I shall still praise him, the salvation of my presence and my God. You jump to Psalm 43, verse 5. Repeat it again. Why are you in despair, O my soul? And why are you disturbed within me? Wait for God, and I shall still praise him, the salvation of my presence and my God. When you, when you pray reactively, when you turn to the Lord in prayer, what, is it gonna, you're going to pray one time and that's going to be it? No. But, but it's going to be a wrestling match. It's going to be something that you, uh, you pursue and persist in. Now, I love that dialogue there. Is it three signs to himself? He understands the battle. He understands what is taking place within his soul, and he's not going to quit praying for the Lord to work. And he's not going to quit talking to himself, saying, Soul, self, we have to turn to the Lord. Why are you in distress? 
I will still praise God. I'm going to wait for him. He is my salvation. He is my God. You see uh, the sons of Korah taking every thought captive uh, and striving uh, to trust in the Lord. This is the kind of dialogue that we need to have with our soul when we are experiencing inner turmoil. We utilize prayer to take every thought captive to the obedience of Christ. And we respond appropriately when that turmoil arises and we turn to God. Now, this is a prohibition that each and every one of us needs to take seriously. We need to understand that this is a command. And we cannot excuse away disobedience to this command. That we must actively prepare for and then battle against the fear and turmoil that creep into our hearts. But this is just one part of a two-part prescription. The the second part is in uh, the latter half of this verse. Uh, It's the obligation that we are to cultivate a growing faith uh, in our hearts. Jesus says, do not let your heart be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. Now, what's, uh, there's a little bit of debate here in terms of how this ought to be translated because uh, this could be translated as uh, Jesus making statements or it could be translated as Jesus giving commands. It could be uh, you trust in God and you also trust in me. Again, they're just making simple statements. Uh, The first one could be uh, a statement, you trust in God. And and the second one could be a command of trust also in me. Uh, Or they could both be uh, commands, trust in God, trust also in me. I think that's the the best uh, uh, translation of what is said here. And think about what Jesus is saying. He's saying, believe in God, believe also in me. And who is he speaking to? He's speaking to the eleven. He's not telling them uh, to believe in him for the first time. He's he's not telling them to to start uh, believing. He's telling them to continue in faith, to continue to trust. Uh, And uh, when uh, Jesus makes this double command and echoes the words, uh, he is uh, doing something theologically significant as well. Because he is uh, elevating himself uh, as an object of faith. To be equal with God the Father. But this is also, so this is theologically significant, but it's also practically significant. It emphasizes that Jesus is uh, worthy of our trust. Uh, And we are commanded to trust in uh, not only God the Father, but also in God the Son. Uh, The triune God is to be the object of our faith because uh, God is, uh, number one, he is the only one worthy of our faith. Uh, He is the one uh, who is holy. He is set apart uh, without sin. We are to trust in him because he is trustworthy. But then secondly, we are to to trust in him and him alone because we will become like what we worship. We've talked about this in the past. uh, That if uh, you uh, trust in idols, you're going to become like an idol. Uh, Deaf and and blind and mute. Uh, That's seen over and over again in the Old Testament. Jeremiah 2.5. Thus says Yahweh, what injustice did your fathers find in me that they went far from me? And they walked after vanity, and they became vain. In Psalm 115, verse 8, speaking of idolatry and idols, those who make them will become like them, and everyone trusts in them. So that's why we are commanded to to worship God, because if we worship God, we are going to become like him. If we worship idols, we're going to become like them. But also, from a practical standpoint, idols can be taken away. Right? 
That's usually how we, we find out that we've been worshiping something other than God. When it gets taken away from us. The story in Judges 18, really 17 and 18, there's a, a man named Micah who sets up a false religion in his own home. He hires a, a Levite and he crafts an idol. Uh, and he has his own little religion uh, there in his household. Uh, and then uh, uh, some men from the tribe of Dan come, come through uh, and they decide, well, we kind of want that priest. We want that idol. We want uh, that religion to be our religion. And they take the, the, the priest and the idol by force. Uh, and Micah comes out and he's running after them. He said, what are you, what are you doing? He's devastated. Judges 18:24 says, Micah is speaking, and you have taken away my gods, which I made, and the priest, and have gone away. And what do I have besides? How can you say to me, what is the matter with you? He's at a loss. feels like everything is being taken away. Because he's been worshiping something that's man-made. And that's the reality. Every single idol will let you down. It cannot deliver on any promise. The foolishness of idolatry is shown forth everywhere in Scripture. Idols will eventually fail you, either by being destroyed or taken away or not meeting your expectations. What happens then? You're at a loss. I remember uh, in college, and every athlete deals with this, but in college, if I've been a football player for, for 10 years in high school and in college, what happens when football is suddenly taken away and I'm done playing football? I attach so much of my identity to that, and it's all going to be done one day. That's what I realized. Football is a wonderful servant, but a terrible master. It got me through college, but it's not what I am. It was shown that it was an idol in my heart. So we don't trust idols. We trust in the triune God, because he cannot be taken away from us. He is the unchanging rock. We are to trust completely in him. And to continue to trust in him. And we're going to see, uh, as we read through First and Second Chronicles uh, this month, I know many of you uh, are you know, praying against me. Why, why is Pastor Thomas making me read these genealogies? Right? It, it gets better, I, I promise. Uh, and, and actually, as we read through First and Second Chronicles, you are going to see some tremendous examples of what it looks like to trust in the Lord. Fully and completely. Second Chronicles 14, uh, there's a situation where uh, we see that the king has to trust in the Lord. I'm going to read verses 9 through 12. Then Zerah, the Ethiopian, went out against them with a military force of one million men and 300 chariots. And he came to Merishah, and so uh, Asa went out to meet him. And they arranged themselves for battle in the valley of uh, Zephathah at Merishah. And then Asa called to Yahweh his God and said, Yahweh... There is no one besides you to help in the battle between those of abundant power and those who have no power. So help us, O Yahweh our God, for we lean on you, and in your name uh, we have come uh, against this multitude. O Yahweh, you are our God, and let not mortal man prevail against you. So Yahweh smote the Ethiopians before Asa and before Judah, and the Ethiopians fled. That's just one example of many of when you realize there is nobody else to turn to. There, I have no good to be found anywhere else. And I must rely truly and completely upon the Lord. 
That's what faith looks like. That's what we are called to. We are called to uh, look to God the Father and God the Son as the object of our faith. We're to believe uh, that God is sovereign, that he is wise, that he is good. And it is just as important to obey him uh, as it is to trust him. Sometimes we, we emphasize obedience to God, but not trust in God. But obedience and trust are both our responsibilities. What are we to believe about Jesus? That he is God the Son, that he lived a perfect life, that he died a sacrificial death. That he rose again on the third day, conquering death. And we are to trust that Jesus is able to save. And trust that he is able to give us life and reconciliation with God the Father. Trust that we uh, are in him and he is in us. That if we have looked to him in faith, uh, that we are united with him. This is important. This is going to be the, the message of John 14 through 16. Jesus is going to depart, but he says it's going to be okay because he's still going to be with him. Because he's going to send the helper, he's going to send the Holy Spirit uh, to be with his disciples. Later on, uh, uh, at the uh, end of, uh, just before, prior to his ascension, Matthew 28, the end of the Great Commission, what does Jesus say? Lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. We need to trust that Jesus is with us now. And we need to trust that if we have uh, placed our faith in him, that he is able to sustain us now through anything and everything. Philippians 1.6, For I am confident of this very thing, that he who began a good work in you will perfect it until the day of Christ Jesus. We have to trust in that. Love the, the lyrics to a, uh, an older hymn, Jesus, what a friend for sinners. Uh, and th- those verses uh, acknowledge Jesus as the Savior who makes me whole, as a strength in weakness, as a help in sorrow, as a pilot in the storm. The chorus says, hallelujah, what a savior, hallelujah, what a friend, saving, helping, uh, keeping, loving. He is with me to the end. That is what we must trust and remind ourselves of and wrestle with. That's what you need to to take your soul to the, the wrestling mats with. Soul, you need to believe this. God is with us. He has not left us. He is continuing to work. He is continuing to act. The remedy for fear and inner turmoil is to put on faith. Some of us might be struggling with this. Pastor Thomas, it's really easy for you to stand up there and say, well, you just need to believe. right?" And it is, in one sense, easier for me to come up here and say, "You, you need to put on faith. It's a lot more difficult to actually put on faith in that moment of fear and anxiety. I'm not saying this is easy, but I'm saying you need to commit to uh, trusting in Christ. But we can be saved with just a little bit of faith. Right? The, the amount of saving faith that we have in the beginning of our relationship with Christ, and any amount of, of faith and trust in Christ will save you. But we are called from that point forward to grow and to mature in our faith. Nobody has a great faith at the beginning. But it grows as we walk with Jesus. And it grows as we uh, day by day choose to trust Jesus rather than being overwhelmed by our fears. In his book, Trusting God, which I highly recommend, 
Author Jerry Bridges says, Just as we must learn to obey God one choice at a time, we must also learn to trust God one circumstance at a time. Trusting God is not a matter of my feelings, but of my will. I never feel like trusting God when adversity strikes, but I can choose to do so even when I don't feel like it. That act of the will, though, must be based on belief, and belief must be based on truth. This is why we are given that command so frequently. Do not fear. Trust in God. We are called uh, to make that choice uh, and to trust in God, his word, his wisdom, rather than in our own wisdom. Love Proverbs 3, verses 5 and 6. Trust in the Lord with all your heart. And the, the, the thing that we tend to trust is forbidden in the very next uh, portion of the verse. And do not trust in your own understanding. Do not lean on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge him and he will direct your paths. Or he will make your paths straight. What Jesus is saying here has been said repeatedly uh, in the entire Bible. And his disciples know the Bible. But Jesus still says it here. He's reminding them, continue to believe, continue to trust, continue to look to God the Father and God the Son in faith. They are to be the object of our faith, and we are to trust in the triune God each and every day of our lives. Earlier I talked about how we typically treat faith. Right, as, a, as a movie ticket. Say, well, this, this gets me into heaven. This gets me into a relationship with God. But once I'm in, I can put that ticket aside. I, I, can, I can throw it away. And I would urge you, don't treat faith in that way. You need to understand the value of that ticket. A long time ago when we lived in Southern California, my wife and I were those weird people without kids, but with Disneyland passes. And, and we would go to Disneyland, uh, and uh, if, if you were to, to go in and take your, your ticket into Disneyland, and then make it through the turnstile and say, that's great, I made it in, I'm going to throw away the ticket now. I'm going to throw away what got me in. You would be deeply grieved. Because if you throw away your ticket, you're going to miss out on so much in the park. Because they want you to take that ticket and go around, and that's what gives you access to so many of the rides. You can go get a fast pass and, and cut this line and cut that line and get this and get that. And, and I love that because that, that's an illustration of how we need to see faith in the Christian life. It's not, this is what gets me in, and then I cast it aside. It, this is what gets me in relationship with God the Father through Christ the Son, and this is what I continue to cling to each and every day in my walk with God. It doesn't just get me in and I discard it. I cling to this faith. And over time, my faith is going to grow stronger. I'm going to become more and more convinced of the goodness of God, of his sovereignty, of his love and affection and care for me. As I know the word, as I memorize the word, as I meditate upon it, it's going to lead me and guide me and guard me. That way when I see fear and turmoil uh, rising up in my heart, I get to play spiritual whack-a-mole, right? 
There it is. Wow. Okay. But I, but I hid it with the truth of God's word. Uh, and I wrestle with my soul and turn my soul back to God and away from fear. That is what Jesus is commanding his disciples here. They are troubled. He said, there's a betrayer among you. I'm about to go and Peter's going to deny me. But don't be troubled. Instead, the remedy is to believe in God and to believe also in Jesus. Amen.